Um, we're doing a, a two-part study, and we've entitled this study, Jesus Reigns, Hope in the Middle of Chaos. And we're going to be taking some time to study verse by verse through the second psalm. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take some time uh, to read scripture together. And so you can use the notes, or if you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn uh, to the second psalm. And we're going to read the entire psalm together. And then we are going to, <coughs> excuse me, and then we're going to pray. And, uh, and then I'll give a little bit of introduction to the series about the uh, portion that we're going to study tonight. And then set things up for next week. But I'm excited about this uh, two-week study that we have together. All right, the Bible says in Psalm 2, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and their uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So, when we talk about hope in the middle of chaos, when we talk about how Jesus reigns, he's on the throne, how do we get this from Psalm 2, right? It might seem at least a little bit unusual because we know that Psalms is in the Old Testament. Jesus is New Testament. Now, in a, in a big picture sense, and many of you know this, the main character of the Bible is Jesus, right? From one end of the book to the other, we see Jesus. The main storyline in the Bible is the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for our sins, right? So we see Jesus and we see the gospel all over Scripture, but it's exciting when we go into places outside of the Gospels and when we can see Jesus. And that's what happens when we come to the second psalm. The second psalm bears some of those familiar characteristics of the psalms, right? One of the most familiar characteristics to us is they were written by David, right? Not all the psalms, but a majority of the psalms were written by David. And Psalm 2 is one of those. It's a Davidic psalm. So that's a characteristic that we're familiar with. Something else about the Psalms that, uh, the Psalm 2 that is familiar is that it is poetic. When and you're talking about its literary style, it's very poetic. So much of the Psalms are songs and uh, poems that the Israelites would sing when they would travel from wherever they lived to Jerusalem for worship. And so there is this very poetic literary style, and we definitely see that in Psalm 2. But where Psalm 2 is different is that it is a poetic reflection specifically on God's promise to Israel to send a Messiah. And even more specifically, if you wanted to read at a later time, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God's promise through Nathan to establish David's kingdom forever. 
right? That's the poetic, that's what's being reflect, uh, reflected upon here in poetic form. But it isn't just a poetic reflection on God's promise. It is also a prophetic declaration. And that's what makes Psalm 2 somewhat unique. Because while it's pofet, po- po- poetic, it is also prophetic. It talks about events that are going to happen in the future. And, our, and what we read in Psalm 2 is partially fulfilled through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're skeptical about that, this is not speculation. We have strong, uh, we have a very strong, uh, uh, solid reason to believe that Psalm 2 is prophetic in nature. When you go to the New Testament, there are two places in the book of Acts, once in chapter 4 and once in chapter 13, that make it abundantly clear that when David first wrote these words, as he was being moved by the Holy Spirit, that yes, he was writing beautiful poetry, uh, thanking God and reflecting on the promises of God to establish his kingdom, but he was also writing prophetically about what was to come. Both of these passages are in your notes. We'll read them together. The first one is Acts 4, verses 24 through 30. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done, and now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. So before we read that second passage, the context of Acts 4 is the apostles are being persecuted for preaching the gospel. They've been pulled in front of the rulers and told, cease and desist, right? Stop preaching. And when they are let go, they find their brothers and their sisters. They tell them what's going on. They tell them about the threatenings. And what do they do? They pray. And part of their prayer is praise to God. And they draw from the Psalms and in specifically... They talk about the second psalm. And they make it abundantly clear that when David wrote those words, that in part they were to be fulfilled in the suffering and unjust execution and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they find great hope and great comfort in the fact that what they witnessed with their own eyes, the glory of the Father in the person of Jesus Christ, his suffering and his death and his resurrection, that all of it is part of God's great plan of redemption. And so what is it that encourages these believers to continue on, even in the face of threats and persecution? It's the faith that they have that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the one who came to take away the sins of the world. And even though he died, he was buried, he rose again in power. And so we have courage and faith. But it isn't just Acts 4 Again, in Acts chapter 13, and verse number 33, the Bible says, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. What a fascinating thing it is to see in both Acts 4 and Acts 13 that Psalm 2 was a prophetic declaration about Israel's promised Messiah. 
and fulfilled in part in the person of Jesus Christ. His death, his life, his death, and his resurrection. We say in part because as we're going to see primarily next week, not everything that is declared in Psalm 2 has been fully and completely fulfilled. Which is exciting because that means that's only confirmation of what we already know to be true. And that is that God is still on the move in the world. That God is still working in the world. Aren't you thankful for that? He's always at work. Right? He's working now. The same God who was working then is working now. <coughs> and so because we know that Psalm 2 is a prophetic declaration about Jesus, fulfilled in part by his life, death, and resurrection, what we can look to and what we can have is hope. Jesus is on the throne. God is in control. We have reason to have faith and to have courage. And so when we study Psalm 2, we can look at it in four parts. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first two parts tonight, and then we're going to look at the next two parts next week, right? So what are the first two parts? Verses 1 through 3, we see the rebellion of humanity. Verses 4 through 6, we see the response of God to that rebellion. And so we want to start by looking at these first two and see from both how we can have faith, how we can have hope, how we can have courage. So let's start first with the rebellion of humanity. We'll read verses one through three again. The Bible says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. As we talk about Jesus ruling and reigning, right, where the psalmist begins is by describing the state of the world. We talk about hope in the middle of chaos, and that's what it feels like sometimes, isn't it? It just feels like things are out of control sometimes. And where can we find hope in this? And we ask ourselves the question, what is the reason Right? Have you ever stepped back and said, how could people treat each other like this? Or how could someone do this to someone else? The Bible describes the state of humanity in powerful ways here. It's rebellion. It started in the garden. It extends all the way to today. There is a God who's on the throne. There's a Savior who's on the throne. He's in control. And from the moment in the garden until now, humanity has rebelled, has bucked against God's sovereign rule and reign. And that's what keeps happening over and over and over again. And what uh, David describes in powerful ways here is what that rebellion looks like, right? What motivates it so that we can be on guard. So let's start with the motivation of the rebellion. What, what, what's at the heart of this? What's causing this? And this is a little bit out of sequence in the text, but I think it helps us in our study. What is the motivation for humanity's rebellion? Well, it starts with sinful pride. Verse 3 tells us that it is the kings and the rulers that are doing all this plotting and scheming. People who occupy positions of earthly power and who perceive that this position gives them some sort of authority, even authority over God. Now, is it not pride and the desire for more, the desire for power, that was at the heart of the devil's deception of Eve and Adam in the garden? In Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5 the Bible says, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. 
You know, there were two things I meant to say at the beginning, and I'm going to say them now. Number one, there's lots of space on your notes to take notes, and I'd encourage you to utilize those. And number two, I'm supposed to teach. It's going to be hard not to preach, but we're going to give it our best shot, right? But we're already facing some temptation here, right? When the Bible says, describes what happened in the garden, God said, don't eat of the fruit, you'll die. And the devil said, that's not what will happen. What will happen is you'll become like God. You'll have, you'll be more, you'll be greater. And it was a temptation for power and a temptation for authority that ultimately led Adam and Eve to make the decision to eat the fruit and to disobey God. And the result is the mess that we see around us now. And so when we talk about where did this rebellion all start from and what keeps it churning is this longing, this lust for pride, uh, for power, the pride that lives inside each and every one of us. And I don't know about you, but as much as I like to think that I don't struggle with pride, it is so subtle and so pervasive in our lives. It's so easy to just think so highly of ourselves. And that's why Peter warned the believers in the New Testament, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Think soberly. As God had dealt to every man a measure of grace, every woman a measure of grace. See, God has a place in the body. He has a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us. And we have to ask, we have to be vigilant each and every day to guard ourselves from pride because at the heart of man's rebellion is pride. Why all the effort to overthrow God's authority? Why the effort to do away uh, with his word? Why the effort to uh, free ourselves from his bondage? Because there's this pride, this desire for power. And we see this all over the place. And I'm not going to get, I, listen, I'm, uh, I'm young, but I'm not dumb. So I'm not going to go too far down this road. But I will tell you that we're not very far off from a season. It happens periodically, every four years, give or take, where the lust for power is on full display. And as believers... We ought to recognize it as part of humanity's rebellion against God's authority. And we ought to rise above the division and the anger that we see as a result of a desire for power. Right? Sinful pride. The motivation for rebellion. But not only that, there's a deception of the mind. What is it? Why all this craziness? Right? There's sinful pride, but there's also a deception. And we see this in verse 3. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. This is fascinating. There's this misguided idea, these kings and these rulers, who we know in part this is fulfilled in the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Roman rulers in Jesus' day. There's this misguided idea that God's authority, his rule and reign over us, is oppressive and restrictive and it's only when we free ourselves from that bondage that we can live a life of true purpose and true meaning. But we understand that this is the deception of the world. This is the deception of sin. We understand that true freedom comes through a relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the reason for which you and I exist. It's the very purpose for which we were created. And the belief that if we just get away from God or out from underneath his, the umbrella of his authority, that things will be so much better, is the opposite of what is actually true. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. 
lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The truth is that true freedom is found in a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. John 8, 31 and 32, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It is when a person turns in repentance from sin in faith to God, in Jesus, and is saved, that is when true life begins. That is where true freedom is found. And one of the reasons why the devil has been so successful in marketing religion instead of true faith in Jesus Christ is because religion is about works. Religion is about what we do. And there's a reason why the devil doesn't have a problem with religion. Because if he can brand Christianity as a a list of do's and don'ts and a bunch of rules that you have to follow, he can uh, be successful in the deception that we're reading about here. It's restrictive. It's repressive. It's going to keep you from a life that really matters and a life that's really fulfilling. When the truth is, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. It's when you put your faith and trust in God, when you're into a right relationship with God through Jesus, that's where real freedom is. And can I encourage you with something? The next time you turn on the news, if you're so inclined to do so, and the next time you see something crazy, and the next time you feel tempted to judge people harshly, understand the devil and the evil that's at work in this world has people's minds deceived. Ask God to give you compassion for people recognize that until that uh, freedom comes into their life, there is no other way that they will be. Rather than having so harsh, such harsh judgment for some of the chaos that we see around us, instead we have to recognize that this is exactly the way we would expect it to be. Humanity's rebellion is on full display. What motivates it? Sinful pride and these fleshly, fleshly uh, deception of the mind. But there isn't just the motivation of the rebellion. We also see the manifestations of it or what it, what it looks like practically in the world around us. We start with chaotic anger. The word rage in verse, uh, uh, in verse two literally means chaos. Uh, in, in verse one, literally means chaos and commotion. This is directly related to the way people treat each other. We see this scheming and plotting, only this is related to our treatment of one another. How can people be so cruel? How can people be so unkind? How can people treat each other this way? It is rebellion. He asks this rhetorical question, right? In in literature, that's the literary device. It's a rhetorical question. An answer is assumed. He says, why do the heathen rage? So, The heathen would be a reference to anybody that doesn't believe in the one true God. And when he says they rage, there is this illogical, chaotic, crazy anger. Now this doesn't always manifest itself so openly and in violence, right? I'm not just talking about war, although that certainly is part. I'm talking about why why is it that people can... Go on social media and say such horrible, nasty things about each other. Or about people they don't even know. And and listen, I wish I could say that I've never been. Have you ever, maybe you've not, God bless you, said something kind of combative and argumentative to a person you don't even know. You've never even met the person. All you're doing is responding to what you're seeing online. 
Where, where is all this craziness coming from? It's rebellion. It comes from this sinful heart. Why, do, why, so, much, why so much anger? Why, why treatment that um, is so unkind and so abrasive? See, unbelievers caught up in the, in the rebellion of humanity and the chaos of this world, that's one thing. Why do the heathen rage is the question. But you know, I sometimes have asked myself, why do the Christians rage? What have we got to be so angry about? Is it possible that we're allowing the rebellion, the rebellious heart that we have, is it possible that instead of yielding to the spirit, we're yielding to the flesh and we're playing into this game? As Christians, there ought to be a peace and a love that comes only from God. And you ought to ask yourself, am I contributing to the rage, the commotion, the chaos that I see around me because I'm not yielding to the spirit but to the flesh? Or am I contributing to the work of God in the world? Am I promoting peace? What did the angels tell the shepherds? He said, I've come to good tidings of great joy, peace to all people. That was what uh, the message of the gospel. And is that the role that I'm playing? Why did the heathen rage? Why so much chaos? Why so much anger? Why so much frustration? What about this? The manifestations of humanity's rebellion. What about useless passions? The Bible says there again in verse number one. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? So the imagination or the mind, the thinking of the people. There's not just this rage. There's also vain imaginations. The word, uh, the, the phrase uh, vain imagination or vain things, it, it carries the idea of the the temporal things of this world, preoccupied by the temporal things of this world. And what's interesting is there's a contrast that we see here in Psalm 2 and what we read about in Psalm 1. When you back up to Psalm 1, which some scholars believe to have been written within a very short period of time, if not at the same time as Psalm 2 was written, the Bible says this, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he doth meditate day and night. What's fascinating is that the same root Hebrew word meditate, that's what we see in imaginations in Psalm 2. And so there's this contrast where the mind of the righteous, the mind of God's people, is occupied by God's truth and by God's law. That's what we've got on our minds, where the contrast is the vain things of this world, the temporal things of this world. When we talk about some of the temporal things of this world, we're not talking about things that we don't need, things that are completely insignificant. We're talking about money. We're talking about possessions. We're talking about stuff. We're talking about a career. All of these things are a necessary part of life. But when the Bible says they imagine a vain thing, there's a difference between recognizing the, necess the necessity of these things and these things being what dominates our thinking. That this is what it's all about. This is where we pour our passions into. And he said the, what we, the way we can know that we're in rebellion as human beings is not just this chaos, this rage, this indiscriminate anger, but there's our passions are poured into the useless things. We are all about these things. And my encouragement to you is if you're a child of God, you've been saved, you've been given a greater purpose in this life. 
and to not allow the false gods, the lesser gods of the world, to get our worship. There is one God who deserves our worship, who deserves our passion, who deserves our praise. Jesus spoke into this when he talked to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. God's people, our minds are not occupied by the vain and temporal things of this world. Our minds are occupied by God's law, by God's truth, by eternal things. And when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these other things are added to us. If you're here tonight and you as a child of God are seeing in your own life the manifestations of our rebellion, the the manifestations of our flesh, you're giving your heart and your passion over to the lesser things of the world. Tonight's a night to find yourself a place to pray and say, God, here you, you can have all of me once again. Because Jesus is on the throne. God is in control. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. The rebellion of humanity is seen in these useless passions. And then finally, the rebellion of humanity. And if you're saying, like, it's kind of depressing so far, Right. We're getting there. You guys are doing great. Right? But we have to understand the situation that we're in to feel the full weight of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Right? So there's uh, the, the rage and the passions, but what about this? Coordinated. Coordinated attacks. Verse number two says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. There's this plotting and planning taking place. We have a practical example of what this looks like in the life of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, which is the passage we read earlier together, it's very clear that some of this plotting and scheming, the people who set themselves against and who they set themselves against, it was Jesus. And the attacks and the unjust and baseless accusations and he was ultimately arrested and ultimately convicted and ultimately executed we understand that all of these baselessness all of these attacks were a coordinated effort and in Acts chapter number four we see that in part it was part of the divine and sovereign plan of God to bring about our redemption but the reality is that what we are seeing in our day to day is the continuation of this manifestation of rebellion the attacks keep coming the the efforts to overturn God's authority in the world the efforts to say I know what God's word his declared word his revealed word says I know what it says but this is what we want to do we see these efforts again and can I say that the first thing that we can do is to take the attention away from ourselves Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 17, and 18, These things I command you, that ye love one another. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. See, Jesus was the victim of injustice. He was persecuted. He was ultimately arrested and killed. And you and I, as followers of Jesus, may experience some of the same hostility as a result of our commitment to living for God, as a result of our faith. But we must understand that it was, it's Jesus. It is God's authority that is the target. And if we trust, the Bible says, if we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne on high. Why? He says, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. One of the reasons we must look to the example of Jesus and his suffering for us is so that when we are experiencing the same opposition, the same persecution, the same pushback as a result of our faith, and listen, I'm afraid, I said I was going to try to behave myself, but I'm afraid that the tremendous amount of freedom that we enjoy here in the United States to worship God has created in us this aversion to persecution. I don't want to minimize some of the very real things that are happening here in the country that we live and the opposition to our faith. Brothers and sisters, there are places in the world where people cannot do what we are doing right now. What do we know of that kind of opposition to our faith? And my prayer is that we would recognize that even as we go forward living here in America, if things change, and if we do not have the same kind of freedom to worship, that ought not to change what we choose to do. And we have to ask God to give us faith to continue to follow him, even in the face of persecution. I'm afraid that because of some of the things that uh, we're so used to, that the absolute worst possible thing that could happen to us is to be persecuted for our faith. And yet we read in the New Testament, they counted it all joy when they suffered for their faith. And I just hope and pray that as God's people, we have that same kind of faith and courage today because he's worthy of our worship, even if it's not popular, even if it's not. And listen, we're not talking about, I want to encourage you, some of us, create our own persecution. You have to ask God to give you humility and grace and love. Right? Sometimes we get ourselves into trouble because we don't yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit and let Him guide us. And then other times, no matter our best efforts to be humble and to be gracious in our witness, you'll have friends, you'll have neighbors, you'll have coworkers. They don't understand. They don't get it. They don't want to get it. They reject your faith. You'll see in culture... The outright attacks on the very precious truths to us. And we have to understand that that's about rebellion. That's the nature, the state of humanity. And we're so thankful today that our faith is not in this world. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. John 16, 30, 32 and 33. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Now, before we read this next part, Jesus has just given his disciples all sorts of bad news. He's predicted his own death. And then he gets to verse number 32, and he says, now listen, what's going to happen is, you're going to get scattered, and I'm going to be alone. None of you will stand with me, right? Remember when Jesus talked about this, and Peter was like, I'll stand with you, and we know how that went for him, right? But he says, there's coming this moment. I've already prophesied of my own death, and then there's going to be this time where everyone's scattered. We're going to be all alone, and what does he say in verse 3? These things I have spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. Now, before we read the rest of that, do you think if you had been there, they might have been like, he's been in the sun too long. 
Like, what is he talking about? This is bad news after bad news after bad news. And he just said, and these things are so you'll have peace. In the world, you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The victory is in Jesus. And he said, guys, it's not going to be easy all the time. But you can have peace and you can have joy because I have overcome this world. And there's coming a day when everything that is wrong will be made right. When everything that is crooked will be made straight. When what is dry will spring to life again. Isn't it amazing to think that there is coming a day when God in his power and in his justice will renew the world in its brokenness. And all things will be made new. Sometimes it can be discouraging. Put your eyes on Jesus. Trust him. He has overcome the world. The rebellion of humanity and all that it means and all that it manifests in the world, it can be discouraging. But here is the truth. Our hope is in Jesus and Jesus is the victor. That's the rebellion of humanity. That's the craziness that we see. But what does God have to say? If the rebellion of humanity is what he starts with in the psalm, what's the response of God? Verses 4 through 6 are really, really interesting passages. Let's dig into these. The Bible says, beginning in verse 4, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So we see in God's response at least three different, we see a response and we see it in three parts. Let's talk about these parts. First is the futility of humans, humanity's efforts to rebel. When you read that phrase, God will laugh. If you're not careful, you can read that and think, man, God is kind of cold and callous, isn't he? I mean, didn't we just talk about all of this rage and all of this frustration and all of this anger and then the Bible says God laughs? What does that mean? Number one, we know the nature of God. He is loving and full of mercy. He's also holy and he's also just. When the Bible uses this language, God will laugh. It's intended to communicate something very important to us. And that is that man's efforts, humanity's efforts to overthrow God's authority are laughable. It's just absurd. It's not going to happen. When my kids are growing up, and I still play, my kids are growing up, my oldest is 10. uh, But my kids, we play this game. Very, very easy game. I win every time, right? It's, we call it the pushing game. Now, I know that sounds bad, but just hold, hear me out, all right? So we interlock our fingers, right? And the purpose of the game is to push the other one as far back as you can go until you hit a wall or a table or whatever. I am undefeated, right? 783 and 0, right? And every time, whether it was with our oldest, who now knows better than to play, whether it's with Garrett, who still gives it everything he's got, his skinny little chicken legs, or whether it's Brooklyn, who Brooklyn has watched her two older siblings and tries different things, right? She cheats. But I still win every time, right? 
and every time when my wife would witness this event, we'd put our hands together and we'd push and they'd push and I'd give them back a little bit and then go a little bit this way. Every time she'd get a kick out of it. You want to know why? Because it's funny. They are convinced, not Sonia anymore, she knows the game. They are convinced that there's a shot. They give it everything they've got. Veins popping out of their head. Everything they got. But the thing is, it's funny because it ain't happening, right? That is humanity's rebellion against God and against his authority. It's funny. It's just not going to happen. When the Bible says he'll have them in derision, the idea is that God in his sovereignty will continue to work in accordance with his will and nothing that man tries to do will change it. All the way back to the Tower of Babel. We're going to build a tower all the way up to heaven. We're going to do things the way we want to do them. And what happened? It all ended splat. And you look from one end of human history to the other. Every effort, every attempt by man to build themselves something, for the, to build their own thing, to come up with their own truth, to do their own thing. It just happens over and over and over again. It falls on its face. Do you remember when Elijah was up on Mount Carmel? And the opposing side had their opportunity to cry out and run around and call down fire. And what did Elijah do? Is he on vacation? Can he not hear you? Right? It was funny because Elijah knew there ain't nothing coming down from up there. Because they're not calling on a one true God. And the reality is that man's effort, humanity's effort to overthrow God, it's silly. And you know what? When we see some of the absurdity. Can I encourage you with something? When we see some of the absurdity, and you know what I'm talking about when I say absurdity in our culture, to try to make our own truth and do away with what God has said and establish something new, when we see it, can we understand it for what it is? It's the continued efforts, same song, second verse, the outcome will be the same. Let's just keep our eyes on Jesus. Because here's what happens. The devil is successful in getting us all worked up about the silliness. I'm not saying that the things don't matter. But what I'm saying is that when we see the nonsense of the world in their efforts to overthrow God and his truth, we ought to recognize it for what it is and stay on mission. And while there's a time and place for some of these cultural issues that we see, there's a place to uh, speak and there's a way to speak and something to say and you ought to ask God to give you wisdom and humility to say what you ought to say in a, in a good and godly way. Ultimately, these things are futile. God is in control. Right? There's the futility of man's efforts. What ought to be our response? What ought, to, what ought, what ought to we to lean in? If it's the futility of humanity's response, but what's the second part of God's response? There is power in God's word. He speaks and things change. There is power in his word. According to verse number five, he says, then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. So in response, God laughs. It's silly. It's, it's not going to happen. And he speaks. And when he speaks, there is power. The Bible says that he speaks in his wrath. Man, that sounds bad. No, God's word is always true and always just. And when it says he speaks in his wrath, it's not like when you and I open our mouths when we're upset. 
When God speaks in his wrath, it is true and it is just. And when the Bible says it will vex them in uh, his sore displeasure, it means that what God says cuts to the heart of who we are. It makes us uncomfortable. The Bible says, Jeremiah 23, 29, Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. See, when we think about God's response to what's happening, there's the futility of man's efforts. But what about the power of God's word? When he speaks in his wrath, which is always just and true, When he speaks and it vexes us in our sore displeasure, what it means is that God's word has power. Can I encourage you with something? You see some of the absurdity in the world. Maybe you even see it really close to home in your own life, in people that you love. There is a temptation to say what we think about it. But my words don't have power. God's words have power. Do you see some of the craziness of the world creeping in to the lives of people that you love and that you care about? Take it to God. Cry out to Him in prayer, and when you have a chance to speak into it, speak His Word. Rely on His Word, trust in His Word, because God's Word has power. God's Word can change things. God's Word can bring about conviction. There have been plenty of times where I've tried to bring about conviction in someone's life, where I thought I knew what needed to be said, What we need to do is rely on God and his word. When was the last time you just prayed and said, God, the next time I have a chance to talk to that grandchild, the next time I have a chance to talk to that sibling, the next time I have a chance to talk to that coworker, the next time you lay out an opportunity for me, when you lay it out there for me, help me to keep my big mouth shut and help me to remember your word because your word has power. We need to rely on the word of God because God's word has power. When he speaks, it's always true and just. His word brings conviction. There's the power of the word of God. But what does God say? There's something that is revealed here about God's nature and about who he is that's fascinating. Because there's all sorts of things that he could say. One of the ways that we can know that when it talks about God laughing and having them in derision that it is, in fact, not some cold indifference on God's part, but it is simply to illustrate how useless it is, is because of all the things that God could say in response to all the craziness. This is what the Bible says in verse number six. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. This is what's interesting about it. Here's what God has to say to all the craziness. Guys, It's already over. The battle's already been won. He says, I have set my king upon my holy hill. Not, I'm going to get around to that someday. I might, I should, if everything goes according to plan. No, he says, I have set my king upon my holy hill. And can I tell you something? There is not going to be some sort of fourth quarter comeback, some sort of Hail Mary, some sort of shocking surprise ending. I can tell you, that the end has been uh, established, there's not going to be some sort of shocking twist. Jesus wins. He rules and reigns. 
He's on the throne. And nothing is going to change that. Nothing is going to overturn that. Nothing is going to make that, um, nothing is going to stop that from happening. The train is pulling into the station. In the same way that I am destined for victory, unless Garrett has a massive growth spurt here soon, right? In the same way that I plan to continue to dominate, right? There is nothing that is going to change the trajectory of this world. God is in control, and he's coming again. If you've never read or heard of a man named Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon is a great preacher and Bible teacher. And one of the great contributions, possibly the most compelling contribution to Christian literature that he made during his life was this massive commentary on the Psalms called The Treasury of David. And I would invite you, you could go online, you can get access to the treasury of David for free. You want to add something to your time with God, read a psalm, read the entries in the treasury of David. I love how he describes this portion of Psalm 2. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Is not that a grand exclamation? He has already done that which the enemy seeks to prevent. While they are proposing, he has disposed of the matter. Jehovah's will is done, and man's will frets and raves in vain. God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. Look back through all the ages of infidelity. Hearken to the high and hard things which men have spoken against the Most High. Listen to the rolling thunder of earth's volleys against the majesty of heaven, and then think that God is saying all the while, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Yet... Jesus reigns. What a wonderful truth that it is. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. When we sing the song or have sung the song, I'm on the winning side. That doesn't mean that, that we're on the side that is winning. It means we are on the side that has won. And we are to live in light of victory. Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11 Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't, wanna, I don't want you to respond. I want you to think about it in your heart. Do you believe that? Do you believe what the word of God says right there? Because if you do, as difficult as it will be, to see people reject the gospel, as difficult as it will be to see the hostility increasing, you will know and I will know that one day, no matter what is said, no matter what is done, no matter what efforts, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we can live with hope even in the midst of such chaos We can live with courage and confidence and faith. Why? I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. There is nothing that will change that. Have you gotten your eyes off of Jesus? Like Peter, you took him off of him and got him onto the waves and the wind and what's happening around you and you're feeling like you're sinking. We have to get our eyes back on Jesus. He's on the throne. He's in control. And nothing nothing will ever change that. We have victory 
We have confidence. We have hope because Jesus reigns.